All right. Well, good morning, Arbor. Good morning. How many of you uh, grew up liking taking tests when you were in school? Anybody like that? There's, yeah, exactly. You can boo those people. That's great. I, I never liked taking text, tests, and I, in fact, I hated it completely. I was always, uh, and, and there was those students, do you remember them? The ones who kind of got up in the middle of the test, like, and they were done, and they took the paper, and they slammed it down on the front of the class on the teacher's desk, and they're like, done. They walk back to their desk, and you're still like on question three, you know what I mean? And so truly, I was always, when the, when the teacher would ask, does anybody need more time? I was always that kid that raised their hand like, yes, I need more time. I never like taking tests. I never like taking tests. And we're going to talk about a series called Tested. And uh, there's a verse in the New Testament that has always baffled me. It's very mysterious. Uh, it's also very, very popular. I've heard lots of people quote it, um, teach on it and whatnot. It's found in James. James is the brother of Jesus. And he wrote this. And you've probably heard this before, but it says, consider it pure joy. Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, there it is, that the testing, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And James goes on, and what he does is he basically says that um, that, that testing produces not just perseverance, but it produces a completeness in Christ. It produces spiritual maturity. And what I want is I want that for myself. I truly do, but I also want that for you, and I want that for our church. And so we're going to tackle this series called Tested. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a handful of individuals who were tested. Some people who literally walked through the fire like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we're going to look at people who went through extreme loss like Job. And some people, they passed the test with flying colors that was given to them. And some people actually failed the test that was given to them. And so today we'll start and kick off this series by looking at Jesus. And I'd like to borrow from a communicator named Robert Madu. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't heard of him, but a little while back, the staff and I, a year ago, went to a conference, and we are at this conference, and they had all these nationally renowned speakers, and there were all these speakers did a good job, but then there was one talk by this guy named Robert that was just head and shoulders above the rest. Every single one of us as a staff member walked out of there going, holy cow, that was life-changing, altering type of message. And so we thought, what can we do to get Robert Madu to come out here and give that message? And when we looked into it, we realized that's going to be way too expensive and we can't afford that whatsoever. So you guys get me this morning is what you're going to get. We're going to talk a little bit about that. I want to try to translate the principles that he pulled out of the passage. And my hope is that you'll be just as encouraged as we were when we walked out of there hearing parts of this message. And so to start us off, here's what I want to do. I want to pray. It'll probably be a long prayer, and then we'll jump into it. Jesus, speak to us. Amen. Amen. There we go. Here we go. Matthew. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, we're going to talk about Jesus' baptism. Then we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We're going to talk about Jesus' temptation. I'm going to read them both back to back, and then we'll jump into the text. So here we are. We'll start with Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John, John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? 
But Jesus answered him, or answered saying to him, permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, he being John, allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the baptism. Matthew chapter four, here's the temptation. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, which you know, that is a long time. If you've ever tried to fast, I mean, I can, I can barely fast 40 minutes, let alone 40 days and 40 nights. And then I love it when the Bible is blatantly obvious. It says, afterward, he was hungry, right? Which I bet he was. Verse three, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. I wanna pause for two seconds here and I want you to notice something, that Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus. Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus. This is free, this is not a part of my talk actually, but this is so, so important. When you approach God's word. When you apply God's word, it is critical that we do it correctly. Because when we have the wrong approach or the wrong application to God's word, you can actually manipulate scripture to make it say what you want it to say. And that is exactly what the enemy is doing right now. In fact, it is one of his tricks is to get you to adjust the word of God to your life rather than adjusting your life around the word of God. It's hugely important here. And so this is not part of the talk, but it's so important there that we hold God's word up high and we must really apply it and, and we must approach it correctly. And here's how Jesus did it. Look at this, verse seven, he interprets scripture with scripture. Jesus said to him, it is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Growing up, I spent time water skiing. Anybody water ski? 
You just like, we had a boat, it wasn't a fancy boat, but we had a boat as a family. And, uh, and we used to water ski in the mornings and every time we went on vacations, we would go water skiing. Um, and it was a huge part of what we did growing up. And, uh, and my friend and I, my best friend and I named Jeremy, we started doing this thing called scurfing before there was wakeboarding. Does anybody know about that? that before you had these wakeboards where you're all strapped in really nice and, and, you know, and tight and so you can't fall out of those, you had these scurf boards were basically like surfboards, which you held onto the rope behind there and rode it like a wakeboard. They were heavy, they were uncomfortable, and one particular vacation, because Jeremy went everywhere with us. He was like a part of the family, my dearest friend, and we went out and we went on vacation. We were at Blue Lake. I will never forget this because of what actually happened. Jeremy's in the back, we're pulling him on the, you know, we're pulling him behind, and we're trying to jump the wake. That's what all teenagers want to do. We want to jump the wake and land on the other side. And so he's giving it a go, he's trying. We are having a great time. The sun is out, it's shining on the water. My family's in the boat, I'm in the boat. My dad is driving the boat, Jeremy's in the back. This is just like the best day ever. We're all talking, we're all laughing. Jeremy takes this big jump and lo and behold, he makes it over the wake, but he smashes and falls, and we're still cheering like, dude, you made it. Well done. We were all excited. We're turning the corner, and we're all cheering for him, and what I noticed, because I wasn't actually looking back at Jeremy, I was holding up the flag and watching my dad, who was driving the boat, and his countenance changed. It went from having, I mean, it was instantaneously. It went from having a good time to I am dead serious. He slammed on the gas and shot towards Jeremy because he could see that Jeremy was just bobbing at this point in his life jacket. Jeremy got hit by the wakeboard, that super heavy scurf board, right across the forehead, and he had a cut right across here. And if you know, when you get a cut, right, on your head, it bleeds tremendously. And so he is all bloody, He's not moving a whole lot. There's blood in the water. And my dad went from all of a sudden having the greatest time to we are serious and he is in charge. He's like, he gave us instructions, get him out of there, get him on the seat. He's bleeding all over the boat, right? We gave him towels to try to hold it up. My dad slams on the gas. He's telling us instructions. When you get there, I need you to take these keys and go to the truck. I need you to unhitch the trailer. I need you to come down here and pick Jeremy up and I'll carry him into the truck and we'll drive him to the emergency room. He was serious, serious, serious. And it was that transition, right? Now, Jeremy, by the way, ended up being okay. So not too much brain damage, not, 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 not much at all, but he had a huge cut. I thought about showing his picture and then I showed his picture to someone and then they said, no, you shouldn't be showing that picture. So I'm not going to show you a picture, even though we have one, so, um, which it's disgusting. And so anyway, all I have to say, what I want you to notice is the transition. It was instantaneous. It was immediate. We were having this great time, enjoying each other, enjoying the sun, enjoying the company, and all of a sudden something happened that took us from zero to serious in that fast. It was just that, that fast. And I share this memory with you to articulate that tension of what's happening and what you'll see here in Matthew 3 when you jump into Matthew 4. From Matthew 3, from the baptism of Jesus, there's that same type of transition, immediate transition into Matthew 4 and the temptation. I need you and want you to feel the whiplash that our Savior went through in this moment, right? He's in fellowship 
perfect fellowship with the Father. He is, his identity has literally just been confirmed in this holy moment. And that was in Matthew 3. and Matthew 4, he's racing off to the emergency room. And not because he was attacked by a scurf board, but he's going to be attacked by the enemy. And friends, the tension is in the transition between the two passages. I think... It's very important to remember that in our Bible, we didn't have chapters and verses until the 16th century. Prior to that, there were no numbers. But oftentimes, what people will end up doing is, uh, these are helpful, right? But it can be a hindrance because we could not get the full context of the text because we lose it because of those chapters and those verses. And so maybe you've done what I have done for all these years, and you'll read the baptism, and then you'll pause, or you'll stop your Bible study at that point in time, at the end of chapter three, and then you'll pick it up in chapter four a little bit later. And it's so easy to do, to read these things independently and as isolated events, but I submit to you this morning that these two events are not supposed to be uh, independent of each other. They are actually interdependent upon each other. And so maybe what we should have done is we should have looked at Mark, Mark's interpretation of this story and these events. Look what he says. He says, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, He saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now look at verse 12. It says immediately, immediately. There is no pause. There is no break. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. Friends, this is a quick transition. It is immediate. Jesus went from the water to the wilderness, from the water to the wilderness. In one moment, he's getting baptized, and the next moment, he's in a battle. In one moment, he's in total comfort, and the next moment, he's in total conflict. In one moment, he has this cohesive community, and the next moment, he's in complete isolation. In one moment, he hears the voice from heaven, and the next moment, he hears the voice from hell. And it's the same thing that happens to us. It truly is. In one moment, we're here on a Sunday. We're worshiping God. Everything's great. Everything's holy. The next moment is called Monday, right? And we go right back in to the workplace and that pace that throws us crazy, right? In one moment, we're stepping out in great faith. And then in the next moment, we're suddenly gripped by fear. In one moment, our identity is affirmed inside of us. And then the next moment, we're being attacked and we're being tested. Friends, the tension is in the transition between the water to the wilderness. Now, Before we're able to talk about the wilderness, the temptation, the test that Jesus went through, we have got to talk about the water. And the first thing that you need to know about Jesus's baptism is that it was a big deal. It is like that first scene in a movie, if you were to go out into the concessions and put more butter on your popcorn and you were to miss this part of the show, you would be playing catch up the whole entire time and even be confused when you get to the end. What I find intriguing, I find this so intriguing, is that Matthew and Luke, 
Did you know this? They are the only two out of the four gospel writers that include or talk about Jesus' birth, right? Mark and John, they skip Christmas. You have to be pretty gangster to skip Christmas. And yet, all four of these gospel writers include Jesus' baptism. They all thought that the water experience was, was such a big deal that it was critical and we needed to know about it, so they included it. It's huge. It's a big deal. You know it's a big deal because the scripture actually said the heavens opened up. I don't know what that would look like. That's crazy. I have no idea. Here's what I do know, though. The next time that the heavens open up, there will be a trumpet. And when that trumpet goes off, we're going home. That's what kind of big deal this is. It's not only a big deal because of that, it's a big deal because of who showed up. Who showed up at Jesus' baptism? You guys, seriously, all three, this is the first time in the New Testament, it's the first and only time in the New Testament that the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, has a cameo appearance by every single person there at the exact same time. The Father is there, and what is he doing? He is making a declaration over the Son from heaven. The Son is there. He's being baptized. And the Holy Spirit is descending like a dove. And so you know it's a big deal because the whole Trinity showed up at the same moment. This is a significant moment. You know it's a big deal as well because of what the Father is declaring over the Son. He is not just declaring some random words. What he is doing is he is affirming the identity of God. He's affirming the identity of who Jesus is. He is declaring truth. Here's what he said. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved. He is loved. He is my son. He is in my family and I am pleased with him. I believe that truth mirrors not just what God said to Jesus, but it mirrors how God feels about us through Jesus Christ. Because God declares to you today, whether you know this or not, that you are his beloved. Whether you know him, whether you don't know him, he loves you. You are loved by him. It also says that you are his children. You're his child. If you know him, then you are a son or you are a daughter of the king. And so you're his And through Jesus and what he's done, he is pleased with us. So no matter what you're facing and no matter what you're going through today, you can declare this truth. You can say this, that I am loved, I am his, and he is pleased with me. I am loved, I am his, and he is pleased with me. I am loved, I am his, and he is pleased with me. Cement that truth into your soul. It will change the way you walk into a room. It'll change the way that you carry your head, that when you say, I am loved, and you believed I am his, and he is pleased with me. Tomorrow morning, when you get up, when you brush your teeth and you take care of your stanky breath, right? I want you to look in the mirror, and I want you to say, I am loved, I am his, and he is pleased with me. Next time you make a reservation at a restaurant and they ask you what your name is, you, you tell them, this is my identity. I am loved, I am his, and he is pleased with me. When you go to Starbucks and you order your drink, right? You say, what's your name? You say, what do I write on the cup? You write, I am loved, I am his, and he is pleased with me. 
Now, they'll probably still spell it wrong, but I still want you to say, I am loved, I am his, and he is pleased with me. Guys, the day we get that in our head to move down to our heart and we believe it to the soul of who we are is the day when our insecurity starts to fade away. It's the day when our joy, when your joy comes back to you. This is a truth that changes your life forever. The water is a great place to be. It is the place where our identity is confirmed. It is the place that we find out not just who we are, but whose we are. We just did a series on identity. We just spent four weeks talking about our identity, and we said this. We said this truth. We are who God says we are. Well, God says that you are loved and that you are his and that he is pleased with you. And I tell you that today simply to warn you, and the reason we did the series at that time is because the water, right? What comes after the water? The wilderness, after the water comes the wilderness. And we did that exactly. That's why we're doing this series tested because we talked about our identity in the last series and now we're talking about what it means to be tested. Right after your identity is confirmed, truly comes a test. Right after you hear the voice from heaven, you are going to hear the voice from hell. And this messes some of us up, doesn't it? It does. As Christians, we have been conditioned that when once we receive the approval from heaven that we are immune from attack from the enemy. We think we're immune from an attack from the enemy. Once we say yes to Jesus and we become his kid, we think if I'm just good enough, if I just pray enough, if I just do enough, then I will be blessed and only good things will come my way past that day. Friends, I'm here to tell you that's just not true. The life of Jesus is proof positive that the approval of heaven does not absolve you from an attack of the enemy. In fact, I'll go even farther than that. I will say the reason that some of you are facing what you're facing is simply because God is pleased with you. It is not something that you have done wrong. On the contrary, it very well can be something that you've done right and you have gotten the attention of the enemy because you're doing right. And so you shouldn't think like, oh, crud, this is happening because, because I'm doing bad things. No, it might happen because you are serving God with your whole entire heart. Another way to say it is this, is that it's the smile of heaven that attracts the scowl from hell. It is the smile of heaven that attracts the scowl from hell. You have got to believe, or at least I believe, that uh, Satan was aware of what was happening at the baptism. Whether he was present or not, who knows, but he knows shortly after that that he was declared the son of God and that God was pleased with him, right? The voice came from heaven. You know this because what does he do? Immediately, J immediately Jesus goes into the desert and Satan is there ready to pounce on him. He's ready to pounce. And it's the same with us. Once we discover who we are, once we have our water experience, Satan is prepared to pounce on us. You will be tested. I will be tested. We will all be tested. Now, I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens to you is a test from God, right? I'm not saying that. We live in a fallen world. As the bumper sticker says, stuff happens, right? Stuff happens. Or at least that's what Forrest Gump said. It says, Stuff happens. 
And today, nobody got that at all, at all. <laughs> Any of you watch Forrest Gump? Thank you, just a few of you. I'll continue. <laughs> but today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hear the Father's voice, and I want to hear it telling you, I am loved, I am his, and I, and he is pleased with me. He is pleased with me. And I want you to receive that and I want you to relish in that. But while you're doing that, don't be shocked if you attract the scowl from, from hell. Truly. It is like clockwork. It is, we go from the water to the wilderness. 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 When you get up in the morning, I want you to hear my voice in your head when you roll out. From the water to the wilderness. From the water to the wilderness. Truly, look at your life. Look at it. And tell me if this doesn't ring true, that you go from the water to the wilderness. And from the water to the wilderness, it is just the way that it is. Look at John the Baptist, for example. John the Baptist baptized people where? He baptized them in water, okay? But when they asked John, who are you? How did John respond? He said, I am one crying out in the the wilderness, you guys. Look at the Red Sea and you look at the children of Israel. They had to go through the water, right? And when they went through the water, they looked back and they saw the hand of God, the miraculous hand of God, take them away from the the oppressing hand of Pharaoh as he washed over them. And in that moment, their identity was confirmed. They said, we're no longer slaves. We are loved. We are God's children, and he is pleased with us. But if you know the story, they did not go right into the promise line. They went from the water directly into the wilderness. For how long? 40 years, people. 40 years they wandered around the wilderness. There is a pattern here. And I don't want to sound like a broken record, but we go from the water to the wilderness. And maybe I'm taking it too far, but my wife has given birth to four children, right? Four beautiful kids. And, and when, when, you know, if you remember, I think this truth transcends even to here. But when you were conceived, you were conceived in your mother's womb. Identity confirmed, right? Congratulations, you're having a boy. Congratulations, you are having a girl. And in your mother's womb, you are surrounded by water. And when the time came for you to be born and you to come out, right? At that point in time, your mom said something like, oh, dang it, my water broke. And then you were rushed to the hospital, right? You were rushed to the hospital. And when you got there and you were born and you came into this world, did you come in laughing? Nope. Did you come in singing? Nope. Did you come in dancing? No way. You came in as every single kid comes into the world with this sound right here. This is what you sounded like when you came in. And some of you moms are having flashbacks right now, right? You're like, oh my gosh. Every newborn baby enters the world kicking, screaming, crying at the top of their lungs. And as silly new parents, what do we say, right? We say, oh, welcome to the world, right? Welcome to the world. And I think if you could, if it was possible to translate and transcribe a newborn's cry into a caption, I believe the caption would mean, what do you mean, welcome to the world? Don't you mean welcome to the wilderness? Because when we enter into this place, we spend our whole lives struggling and striving and trying and carrying the weight of the wilderness that we were born into. Truly, we go from the water 
to the wilderness. And so here's my question that we have got to answer today. How will you handle your test in the wilderness? How will you handle your test in the wilderness? I have a few ideas for you, and so let's shoot from there. First thing that you need to do is you need to remember, okay? Remember where you are. Remember where you are. The first question that God asked Adam and Eve when, uh, when they sinned and they ate the apple was, where are you? And God didn't ask that question because he didn't know where they are. He asked that question to inform them that the world has now changed. Because of this action, you are no longer, in fact, he, they were sent out of the garden and they were sent out into the wilderness. They were sent out into this enemy place where enemy territory, and that's exactly where we live today. And guys, the problem isn't actually the wilderness. The problem is who is waiting in the wilderness. When Jesus walked into the wilderness, Satan was there and Satan was strategic. Notice that he didn't pounce on Jesus the moment that he entered into the wilderness. He waited for the opportune moment. That is what our enemy does. Our enemy watches, our enemy waits, and our enemy attacks. That's what our enemy does. He did that same thing. He waits, he watches, and he attacks. He did it in the garden, and he did it with Jesus inside of the wilderness. He waited for 40 days. He watched for 40 days. And then when Jesus was at his weakest moment, he attacked like the snake that he is. Now, this might mess some of you up, but did you know that snakes are one of the only species that don't blink? Did you know that? This is what watching the Discovery Channel will teach you, right? Snakes, they will wait and they will watch, and then they will attack. And they wait, and they watch, and their eyes get really dry like this right here, and then they will attack. They will wait, and they will watch, and they will attack, and it's creepy, it's completely creepy. If you've ever watched this, I heard this on another uh, episode of Discovery Channel about a lady, this is nuts, there was a lady who had a pet snake. Did you hear me, a pet snake? This sna would somebody say yes? Oh dear, okay, so you, have, you cannot listen to the rest of this story at all. So truly, a pet snake, the, the animal in which this, our enemy chose to like manifest into to have a conversation with Adam and Eve, she had one of those, pet snake, right? But her snake had a problem. All of a sudden, her snake stops eating, right? She had this python, and this, for, you know, for months, this, this python stopped eating, and so she decides to take her python to the vet and ask the vet, hey, vet, I don't know what to do. My python's not eating anymore. Um, I used to feed him rats and rodents and things of that nature, but just stopped, just stopped eating whatsoever. And so the vet, with much experience, looked at the lady and then looked at the snake and then looked at the lady and looked at the snake and then asked the question, a very odd question. He said, by chance, have you... Um, been sleeping with your snake? And the lady was like, well, yeah, actually, um, the cage is right next to my bed, and, and the snake is not poisonous, it's a python, and so, um, so sometimes I'll just open it up, and I'll let the snake slither out and, and jump in me with bed, and so I hope you don't do that, um, so, but, uh, <laughs> but, but literally, let, let the snake out there and, and whatnot, and so the lady's like, yeah, yeah, I do, I do that, and so he follows up with another question. He says, okay, well, have you ever, just by chance, ever woken up to your snake stretched out to you, next to you, along the bed? And the lady's like, yes, 
I have. In fact, this morning I woke up and, and, and the snake was like lined up right next to me inside of the bed. And then, you know, and so the vet was like, okay. I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is your snake is not sick. And the lady's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> He's good. The bad news is the reason that your snake is not eating and hasn't eaten for months is because it is preparing to eat you. See, the reason that it, when you let it into your bed, that what it's doing is it's orchestrating its digestive system so that it has enough room so that it could swallow you whole. And the lady's like, really? You know? <laughs> and when you find it lined up right next to you in the bed, the reason it's doing that is because it's sizing you up to see how much room it needs to get, how big it needs to get in order to take you out. Right? Yeah. Now, friends, hear me on this. This, this right here is how we sometimes act when it comes to our enemy. Truly, we invite him to bed, right? We live our lives as if Satan doesn't exist and we walk around and we don't remember that we're in the middle of a spiritual battle. We're in the middle of a spiritual war and we are in enemy territory. Make no mistake, if there is a God and there is a God, then there is an enemy. And that enemy's name is Satan and he is seeking to devour you. He waits, he watches and then he attacks when the opportunity is the best for him to be able to do. Notice again, when Satan attacks, he attacks right before Jesus' ministry begins. Jesus hasn't done a single miracle. He hasn't turned water into wine. He hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't walked on water. He hasn't cast out demons. He hasn't been to the cross. Satan is trying to take him out before he can get started. And he does, the same, he does the same with us. Anytime that we're, you're getting ready to start something, expect an attack. If you're going to start a family, right, you're going to have a new kid, expect an attack. If you're going to start a new job, expect an attack. If you're going to start a new ministry and you're going to step out and you're going to put your faith on the line in some area and you're going to serve, expect an attack from the enemy, Right? Basically, bottom line, don't be surprised when Satan attacks. You have to remember, we have to remember where we are at. We are no longer in the garden. We are in enemy territory. And we have got to keep that in mind when we're walking through the wilderness. The next thing to remember is this. We have to remember that the word is your weapon. The word is our weapon. It's our only weapon, actually. Notice what Jesus did in response to the temptation. Every time he was tempted, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He didn't say it is hashtagged. He didn't say it is tweeted. He didn't say, I heard it in a sermon a couple weeks ago. No, he won the war in the wilderness. He passed the test by using the word of God. This is our one and only weapon. What I find interesting is this, is that when Jesus was in the water, the word came over him. When he was in the wilderness, the word came out of him. It came out of him. And if we don't have God's word inside of our head, or as scripture says, hidden in our heart, 
then we are naked to defend ourselves when temptation comes. Eugene Peterson, he, he's a guy who wrote the, the version of, uh, of the Message Bible. He recently passed away. What he used to say about the Bible is he said, eat this book. He said, devour this book. We've got to get this inside of us. And like a camel that goes into the wilderness, right, and stores up water inside of it for the opportune time when it needs it the most, we need to do the same. We need to put God's word in our head and get it into our hearts. I've heard so many people quote John 32 incorrectly. They say the truth will set you free. No, the truth will not set you free. What that passage actually says is you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. The only truth that will set you free is the truth that you know. So when you're in that moment of temptation, what comes up into your head, what you're able to defend yourself with is the word of God. And if you don't have it in your heart and you don't have it in your head, there's not a lot of time to sit there and look up the right verse in that moment. That's why we got to devour this thing. This word, this book, as Jesus demonstrated, is our weapon. And so to pass the test in the wilderness, we got to remember where we are. We are in enemy territory. We have to remember that the word is our weapon. And the last one is we have to remember where our help comes from. We have to remember where our help comes from. Matthew tells us this at the very end of the temptation. It says, the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Think about this, you guys. If Jesus needed assistance from the angels, how much more do we need the help of God in our lives if Jesus needed assistance? Friend, I, I, I believe that you can win the war in your wilderness. Whatever wilderness looks like for you, I believe that you can win that war. I believe you can win the war in your wilderness. You wanna know how I know that? Is because it's basic. The battle is already won. Because of Christ, because of what he's done on the cross, the battle is already won. Satan can't throw anything at you that you cannot defeat because Jesus defeated him on the cross. Nothing. He can't take you out. It's impossible because our help comes from Jesus himself. That's where our help comes from. That phrase, where my help comes from, I remember it, read, I never read it actually in Psalm 121 until I learned it in a song called I Lift My Eyes Up. And if you've ever heard that song, that song literally is a quote from Psalm 121. It's amazing. And so I thought to end our time, instead of just me saying, praying and saying amen, I thought what we would do is if you know that song, I would encourage you to sing with me. So I don't have a band here, so we'll see how it goes, right? But we're gonna sing that song. And if you know it, sing along with me. It goes like this. I lift my eyes up, up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you. My help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. Oh, how I need you, Lord. You are my only hope. 
You are my only So I will wait for you to come and rescue me, to come and give me life. I lift my eyes up, up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? Our help comes from God and God alone. We go from the water to the wilderness. And though the Spirit, catch this, I don't know if you noticed in the passage, but the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. He led him to the baptism, but he also led him into the wilderness. But the good news is that even though the Spirit may lead you into the wilderness, he will not leave you there because Jesus has already won that battle that we can win the war in the wilderness. We can pass that test. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.